You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. You know, truth in a drawer doesn't do anybody any good. Truth declared changes things. Truth lived by, believed, changes things. Truth in a drawer doesn't do anybody any good. Love worship today. Love the declaration. Um, I love it when Erica preaches my message before I get an opportunity to. She said she was in Ezekiel. Well, eventually this morning we'll get to Daniel. So nice progression. But lately I feel like I'm caught between two children's books. Um, two of my favorite. One is Judith Vorst, Alexander and the Terrible horrible, no good, very bad day. The other is Hans Christian Andersen's folktale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Um, We have hit crisis, we've hit hard, and yet some people are still seemingly unaware. Um, Another book I finished recently is John Eldridge's most recent book. Eldridge is most famous for his um, book, um, I was going to say Braveheart, but that would be a movie. Um, there you know what it is. Um, his most recent book is Get Your Life Back, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. Um, in that book, he writes how we're not built psychologically to process the amount of heavy news that we get from everywhere, right? So we get earthquake news from Haiti. We get war news from Afghanistan. We get uh, um, the rising COVID um, Numbers and the Delta variant and its um, contagious nature. We get uh, rising inflation news. And, and then every bit of news that we get then gets accompanied by its own spin, right? So then we get someone else's ideological perspective, who they're going to blame or place assignment on when, in addition to that, that news. And the entire world fills in crisis But the root of our anxiety isn't as much tied to maybe the crisis as it is um, the exposed instability of our social and governmental structures to handle the crisis that we're in front of. And most people beyond the anxiety were pretty much just exhausted, exhausted by it all. Now, as spiritually influential followers of Christ, what does... What does forward in faith, what does forward by faith mean? What does it look like in, as Eldris calls it, a world gone mad? Because it's in these specific times of social and geopolitical uh, medical upheaval that our faith shouldn't be just something that's a lifestyle or a moniker, um, but it should be the very driving force in our life, that we are hope carriers, that we move forward in hope, by hope, with hope. So it's not, it's not about just how do, we, how do we hunker down and survive the next crisis. I, I lived in a time I felt like that was kind of probably a good way to live. They just keep your head down. This is going to be over soon, and then we'll be able to move on to normal. And it just doesn't seem to exist because of crisis after crisis after crisis. So I wanted to move my attention from dealing with specific crises in terms of culture and faith to really how do we move forward by faith in a culture of crisis. 
I think the first thing we need to do is we need to get our kind of our equilibrium. So these three kind of points are different than, than the four movements I'm going to suggest from the book of Daniel. The first is that we need to sh shake off the shell shock of crisis. You know, there is something called shell shock, you know, and it, and it kind of, it messes with your equilibrium. You have to kind of gather yourself in order to kind of reorient to yourself to what's going on. And I, I think there's been so much shell shock, especially over the last 18 months, that we need to kind of get some stability. I think we get this from John 16, 33, because Jesus sees everything and he has prepared us for everything. John 16, reads, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Peace would be the antithesis to crisis. I have told you these things. It's my favorite part of Scripture. If you haven't heard me say that, you know, 100,000 times here at Gateway. When you start reading John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you get his last teaching to his disciples before his arrest and then subsequent execution. It's, it's, it's unbelievable um, material Jesus feeds us. And in this, I've told you these things, 13, 14, 15, 16, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And again, I know it, it, I repeat it often, but I love that he doesn't say, I've taken care of the trouble. Because that would can keep him always in attention to the trouble. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the source of the trouble. So we had to shake off, we had to shake off this shell shock of crisis. The second is we need to live with feeling, but not by feelings. And what I mean by that is it's, it's really just another, you could put the word faith in there too, live by faith, but that seems to be so generic and it's the Sunday school answer. Let me just say that we need to live with feeling, with passion, with passion that we have an understanding of the depth of our faith, a, a declaration that God reigns above it all, that this is his kingdom. We, we're not living, we're not, this is not his kingdom, but we live in his kingdom and to have that kind of feeling and passion instead of being driven by our feelings. Because they're two different things. Because this feeling about having faith in a God that reigns above it all is a driving feeling. It's a driving passion. The others, they come and go and they're roller coaster and they're up and down. And that's why we can feel great one day and feel like there's no end in sight the next day. Jesus gives us his understanding that how he feels and how he felt and how his worldview never changed despite any of the circumstances. And we read scripture from Genesis to the end. The worldview, our biblical worldview stays the same. And I think one of the things that helps us, when he, when he tells his disciples, he says, listen, I know where you are. I know where you, you're going. And listen, the world hated me. And it's going to hate you too. Don't let that feelings of being on the outside or being marginalized. I, I literally read something yesterday. Michael Moore, a documentary filmmaker, was comparing evangelical Christians to the Taliban. Right? I mean, if, if, if he wasn't so serious, it's laughable. The world hates Christianity. It hates Christ. The world does. It just, it just does. And there's just times where we can kind of get away with it and we're okay and overlooked. But as soon as we stake it, take a biblical worldview stand, buddy, here it comes. 
So are we going to be, is our biblical worldview going to be shaken with each feeling that we have? Or are we going to be driven by this feeling and this passion of faith and the Lord reigns above it all? The third is to follow Jesus forward on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. That he has given us real purpose. He not just to, um, a self-serving, self-preserving faith. Our, our faith wasn't given to us to just persevere, to just somehow protect ourselves, our little enclave. We've been given a mission far greater than, than just our own self-preservation. Listen, so, in, so in, in, in Acts chapter 2, when he says, and I will pour out my spirit, and you will be filled with power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the Greek word for witness is the word in which we pull martyr. It's martyria. I will give you power to be my martyrs. I mean, you're going you're to stand for me and people are coming for you. But that witness is what brings life and light to the rest of the world. This is our calling. Listen, Christianity wasn't given. Christ didn't come and die on a cross so that we could be comfortable. So that our family can be safe and that we can be safe and we can carve out this like, nice kind of living I want that, dude, I'd prefer that. You know, just let me finish work on a day, go home and watch, and listen, college football, tournament golf, and I'd be okay. But that's not what our calling is. And so why, why do you think you're so bored with that kind of life? Because that kind of life offers you no purpose. It offers nothing greater than us. It all gets limited to us. And if that's all Christianity is, if that's all the faith is, you're going to get bored with it fast. You're going to get disappointed with it fast. It's not going to live up to your expectations. Even see how that sounds? Will Christianity, will biblical Christianity live up to my expectations of life? It's the opposite flip of will we live up to the expectations and the calling that God's given us? How do we move forward in faith in a culture of crisis? We've got to get some equilibrium Instead of being so shell-shocked, we need to live with feeling and passion, not by our feelings. We need to follow Jesus forward on mission. He's given it to us. He's empowered us. The New Testament gives us no social environment where Christianity is in any type of cultural favor. I know later on, Constantine comes to faith, and there's this, this period of, um, of uh, kind of uh, peace among Christianity, but in the New Testament, what we read, there is no social favor with Christianity. In fact, because there is no social favor, 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 then it gets spread out into all the world. And when we read the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you find very little peace in the Old Testament. What we find is exile. Now, we're responsible for that exile. Even what Erica was talking about in Ezekiel, this continual plea of God to say, drop the other gods, guys. I know you're living in the midst of a lot of other gods, but they don't offer life. And if you keep following that path of trying to find life in those dead places, I'm going to have to do something extreme. See, God is willing to do extreme things because of how much he loves us and how much his redemptive purpose is going to be accomplished. And that extreme measure that we would see extreme is exile. And we read so much of the Old Testament. And as people are in exile... But they're not, when they're in exile, they're, they haven't lost their redemptive purpose in exile. 
They haven't lost their chosen status in exile. They haven't lost God's intent or attention in exile. God has them in exile because they need to be drawn back to him and they've just gotten to that place that without exile, they ain't coming. And he moves them into exile. This morning, the four faith movements, a culture in crisis. The first one is God is in control despite present appearances. God is in control despite present appearances. I'm on this book, I'm on this book theme today. You, you've heard the phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? You can't judge a book by its cover. The, the underlying thing here is you, you can't understand what a book is saying based on an outward cursory appearance. You need to get in there and dig into it and find out really what the author is bringing to the table. You can't judge a book by, by its cover. You can't judge God's control factor by just looking at things from the outside. The outward appearance of our current culture looks like it's void of God's influence. And when it's void of God's influence, and it's void of God's control, then someone else is in control. Uh, I, I thought, I, I liked the James Bourne movies. I liked them when they first came out. And um, there's one of them further on, and, and uh, James Bourne's character, you know, he's on his own. And, and uh, Nikki, the, 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 um, the character Nikki, um, the, she's in the, the brief room, briefing room, and, and they're saying, who's giving him his orders now? And she says, the scary version? Himself. See, when we don't think that God's in control, when we don't live and operate like God's in control, at some point in time, either we advocate control to someone else or we go, well, if no one else is going to take control of this, I have to. And while I applaud, while I applaud the kind of the get to it, stick to itiveness of that phrase, we make mess of things when we don't follow God's control. The editors of the first line. And the first line of Tremper Long's NIV application commentary to the book of Daniel is this line. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. And it becomes that uh, Tremper Long's, it becomes his kind of final analysis of the core message of the book of Daniel. And throughout that commentary, he repeats that phrase over and over again. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Now, I, I felt like as I was writing this, I had to take a little sidebar here on God is in control. It is the lamest thing that can come out of our mouth sometimes in circumstances. And why I say it's lame, I, it's not lame unless it's an excuse for you dismissing what's going on in that person's life so that you can move on with yours. It, it's the Christian version of the bumper sticker, I, uh, it's going to be okay, whatever those, in, whatever those letters are. Right? Like somehow we just go, oh, it's going to be okay. I mean, is that really a life strategy? Oh, it's going to be okay. It's not lame when we say God is in control if we really do believe and understand what that actually encompasses. One, that God hasn't lost sight of you. When you can tell me in my crisis, God hasn't lost sight of you. If I can look you in the eyes and I can believe it and I can say, God hasn't lost sight of you. Now that matters. If I can say that God is acutely aware of your emotions. It's not that somehow we will have, as a Christian, we robotically walk through crisis. It is not true. It's not so. It doesn't happen that way. But I can, I can walk through a crisis emotionally if I can keep walking. God is aware of you. God is aware of your emotions. God is in control. He hasn't abandoned you in your crisis. 
Second, God is present to clear a path forward for you. Look for it. See, when things get hard, our faces go down, right? Their countenance has, what's the word with that? Fallen. Their countenance has fallen. You can see someone when their countenance has fallen. You can recognize when someone, their countenance is up, right? So the countenance falling means we get in crisis, we get overwhelmed, we get the weight on our shoulders, and we look at our feet. Because we don't want to trip. We, we don't want to step in the next pit, But God is in control as God's present and he is carving out a path forward. Look for it. And to look for it, you got to pick your chin up a little bit. And the only thing that's going to pick your chin up a little bit is believing that God's in control. The last one of that is that God will accomplish his plan and all of God's plans are good. God will accomplish his plan. Now, here, here's, the, here's the unique American twist on this. We want God's plan accomplished with us always being able to experience the triumphant conclusion. We are not very comfortable. I'm not. I'll just, I'm in the boat. I'm not very comfortable with Hebrews 11, where it says that all of these that were living by faith when they died, having not yet received the promise. And yet, believing that God's in control and that God's plans are going to be accomplished and God's redemptive plan is good, they're they're willing to say, I'll play my part in this plan. Can we do that? Can we do that in the middle of cultural crisis where it seems like every other social or governmental um, place that we're looking to for stability? I think it's a good thing that we're starting to recognize that all of these social structures are run by men and women. And they are purposeful. They were put in place for a purpose. Um, The purpose probably was a good purpose, but we're still all fallen people. But when I can turn to God is in control and I will play my part in his plan and I will not not, um, offload my faith and hope on any other structure, other than God's kingdom. So David lived in, or Daniel lived in the 6th century BC. And Babylonia was the world power of the time and they were sweeping towards Jerusalem. Israel had been warned throughout the prophets, Ezekiel previously, that you guys are capitulating to your environment. That's really what this is about. They're in the promised land, but they're in the promised land with other nations and other gods. And the concern always of God is they would would capitulate. There's a reason why when when they were supposed to destroy a people, they were supposed to destroy their gods. And that didn't happen all the time. And so... They were capitulating. They were, they were sometimes outright ignoring God. Other times they were just adding in other things. Like, what could, I mean, if one God's good, like, wouldn't it stand to reason that just like five or better? Right? That's how, we, that's how we do everything else, especially in our country, right? There's not two flavors of nine lives cat food. There's like 36, you know, that we're feeding our cat. We, we always want to multiply our choices, so let's just multiply how many gods that we have. And this is Daniel's environment. Babylonia comes through, and, they, and they, uh, they conquer Israel. Daniel and others are taken into captivity. Daniel is a teenager, and he lives throughout the entire 
70 years of this exile. He serves underneath uh, three Babylonian kings and then a king from the Mede and Persians. The first chapter we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. All right, so here's the point, right? Despite present appearances, God is in control. They're in exile, but what we read is that God, the Lord delivered, the Lord delivered them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you can go, rut row, you know, God, what's that about? You've delivered, but listen, he also said he delivered some of the articles from the temple. All right, so here's the connection. In order to demonstrate your dominance in this, in this time of the world, not only would you destroy gates, you would destroy walls if, if you stayed there long enough too so that the city would not be able to be re-inhabited safely, that it could always be captured, but you would make a point to destroy them, which they did, destroy the temple. And this was a demonstration of the dominance of their gods over those gods, all right? And though this even went a little further, they were going to remove, and these utensils would have been layered in gold or pure gold or, or silver or the like. They were used in the worship and the sacrifices for Yahweh. And they said, we're going to take some of those and we're going to bring those and they're going to serve our gods. Now see, so, so, so God even in itself, he, he, he is also delivering that up to them to say, listen, they, they think they're in control here but I've done this. See, he wasn't even concerned about his reputation in the moment. He, he's concerned about his redemptive, holistic redemptive plan. Earlier in the Old Testament, Ark of the Covenant's captured. It's brought into the uh, temple of Dagon and they drop it off. The very presence of God represented in this Ark of the Covenant, they drop it off in this, their other temple. The next morning they walk up, they go in, the priests go in, open the doors and all the idols are laying face down. Well, they stand them back up, like somehow a wind blew through. I mean, they just stand back up. Next day, they're down and their heads are bald. God, God can handle this part of the exile, but, I want it, what, exile, but what I wanted you to hear is this, in, despite present appearances, God is in control, that even in exile, no one came and took them away. Just like Jesus wasn't murdered. He wasn't even killed per se. He offered his life up. Despite present appearances, God is in control. All right, the next one is crises are temporary. Identity is eternal. So we read Daniel 1, 3 through 6. Then the king ordered... Uh, Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. 
among those who were chosen, some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So, first, God is in control despite all appearances. Second, crises are temporary. Identity is eternal. So here's what Daniel's name meant in Hebrew. My judge is my God. The name that he was given meant Bell protects his life. So it was changing a godly identity for the gods of Babylon. All right? Hananiah. Yahweh has shown grace. He was given the name Shadrach. The command of a coup. Another of their gods. Mishael. I love this. I mean, like, I want, just start calling me Mishael. This, I like this one. I can't pronounce it, but I like this one. Who is what God is? I mean, I want that on a t-shirt. Who is what God is? They change his name to who is, who is AQ is. Who is like AQ? And Azariah. Yahweh has helped. Abinego. Servant of Nego. That was like the least creative one that could come up with. Listen to me. Identity is everything. Identity defines who you are, whose you are, and what you're capable of. And God writes our identity in a blood red Sharpie that cannot be masked over with some adhesive name tag scribbled in some other pen. I know that name-calling <laughs> has resurfaced in our public discourse. And we used to just say that was what kids did, right? And, and, and when they, and you come home and tell your mom and dad, well, they just called me this name. Generally, moms and dads, or at least mine, would have said, either ignore them or shut them up. Well, you can't ignore name-calling if you don't know who you are. If you know who you are in Christ, you can dismiss name-calling. But if there's doubt in who you are, that starts breeding doubt. Listen, they're in there. They're getting completely retrained. They're getting completely reprogrammed. Okay, this was, this was a, a battle strategy style of Babylon. They're, they were increasing all over the land. They needed leaders, so they couldn't produce all of their own leaders, so they would take the best and the brightest of the nations they conquered. They would reprogram them in order to put them in place so that they could lead in a Babylonian way. And Daniel's out of choices. These, th these four guys are out of choices, right? So, so they're, they're exiled. They're in this culture, and they've been chosen to lead in this culture, and there was very little recourse of what they had to do. You, have, you need to teach me another language, I'm going to learn another language. They taught them witchcraft or divination. They taught them how to interpret dreams. Well, if that's what I got to do to survive, then okay. You know, I'll learn this. I'm gonna, we're even going to give you new names. All right, you can give me a new name, but I know who I am. Every crisis that you walk through is temporary. I understand that we can link these things together and it seems like a whole lifetime of them. But crises are temporary. Your ident identity is eternal. Do not give up your identity in a crisis. 
Do not give up your identity in a crisis. So, here's the third one. Believe God is in control despite all present appearances. Don't surrender your identity in a temporary crisis. Drawn lines draw favor. Drawn lines draw favor. Here's verses 8 and 9. Um, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. On the surface, this is an odd thing. It's like, okay, you're going to give me a new name, okay. You're going to make me learn all this new stuff about your kingdom, and you're going to want me to lead in your kingdom, and you're going to give me a, a position to lead in your kingdom. Okay. Now you're going to give me better food than I've ever, ever seen before, and I'm going to say no thank you. It, it, it seems like he chose just this little thing not to comply to, and yet for Daniel, something clicked. And he goes, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. This has always been related to worship in my world. What we eat, how we eat it, how it's prepared, who it's given to first, all of this has always defined worship in my, in my culture. And so you know what? Here's my line. I'm not going to defile myself with that. I don't know where your lines are in your crisis, but I guarantee you they're there. And this was where he drew his. No, I'm done. What's interesting is, on this side of that line, it says, God showed him favor. I wonder if, if we're looking for the favor of God in a crisis, I'm wondering if we haven't got there yet because we haven't drawn our line. When Daniel draws his line, God also then gives him a, a little creativity here. This program, this reprogramming um, regiment he was in was a multi-year program. And he's saying, I don't want any of the king's meat, just give us vegetables and water. I mean, whoever says that, right? Just give me vegetables and water. And look, I understand that it's too risky for you to let us do that for the next three years. So let us do it for 10 days. How many of you participated in our fast, beginning year fast, right? And so when you talk about the Daniel fast, we talk about that. This is kind of where it comes from, right? Okay, Daniel went away from that to just fruits, vegetables, or whatever. Um, and at first, when you hear about, about fasting and you go, oh, well, that's, that doesn't sound like much. That doesn't sound very hard until you do it, until you spend 10 days eating green beans and edamame or whatever the stuff's called, then you go, this is hard. And it has an impact on you. But 10 days in, he reassesses and they look great. I mean, they're great. Three years later, he's assessed by the king, the four are assessed by the king, and the king says, who are these four people? They are 10 times 10 times in every category, smarter, wiser, stronger, 
than this group over here. Drawn lines draw favor. In crises, you're going to come a time where you have to draw the line. I'm not going any further. I'm not going to ditch my faith any further, or I'm not going to capitulate this way any further. I'm not going to lose my faith in this way. I'm, you draw a line, and when you draw a line, then God says, okay, I was waiting for my people to stand up, and now I'm going to kick in. Draw a line, draw a favor. Here's the last one. A consistent God is worthy of consistent trust. So this was all chapter one. And chapter one builds, chapter one builds all these foundations for the rest of the time, the rest of the 70 years that they are in this exile. And the first six chapters of Daniel have some great stories in it. The back half of Daniel is very prophetic and it gets very deep. The first six chapters walks us through several instances where, where these four men have to stand up against opposition. All right? So, so um, here's a, I'm going to sneak in a leadership lesson. Um, Jordan, I remember the one that you told me not too long ago when you said, young leader skip leg day. I'm going to have to do this whole thing on that. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. But here's another leadership lesson for you. People in power like results. Peers don't. Does that make sense to you? People in power like results, but peers don't. So they had gained all kinds of favor from their, the people above them, right? Because they, they were leading well. They, they, they were producing exceptional results. And employers and bosses and owners of company love people who produce exemplary results. But your peers, not so much. And this is what's happened. So in chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're excelling, not going well with their peers. And so they conjure up, they pump up Nebuchadnezzar and say, if someone doesn't bow to worship you over this period of time, they should be executed. And Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, absolutely. Because again, in that culture, he's a god, okay? If you're, if you're familiar with the story, don't get ahead of me. So they stand and they draw another line. Nebuchadnezzar says, really? Th this is what you're going to do? Because if you continue on this path, then this furnace is going to be your next and last home. And this is their response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, let's see, where, where am I? Uh, King, ne King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold set before us. Here comes another line. Hey, we've done everything you've asked us to do. We ain't doing this. And in spite of all present appearances, they knew God was in control infuriates Nebuchadnezzar. They're placed in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar peers in and goes, we put three in, I'm counting four. Who's the fourth? It appears as if it's the son of God. They come out, they're not even, they don't even smell like smoke. Like you can't even go into a barbecue place and come out and not smell like smoke, right? 
They don't even smell like smoke. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, there's no God like that God. Do you see how it forwards God's plan? When a whole nation built on all other paganistic practices sees a follower of Christ, of God, draw lines in the sand. Yeah, I live here, but I don't have to follow all of this. I'm not going to let you demean me. I'm not going to let you put me in a box. I'm not going to let you rewrite my identity. Yes, I got to live here. Yes, I got to produce here. Yes, all of these things, but you will not put me in that box. You will not determine my identity. I will not compromise in my worship. See, the way that our culture gets around this is because the culture tells us to worship ourselves. So it seems less harmless, but it's not. It's just as damning. We go to Daniel 6. Somehow Daniel avoids the furnace. Come on up, team. Daniel avoids the furnace. Don't know how. Doesn't tell us how. You get to Daniel 6, and Daniel now is in the first king of the Medes and Persians. The exile is coming to close. Daniel is no longer a teenager. Daniel is possibly 80. Okay? So Daniel has figured out how to live in exile at the highest level of government. I mean, he is at the highest level, um, trusted. Uh, he's been, he proved himself, and he's trusted. And again, a group of people, we're, done, we're, we're tired of Daniel. We need Daniel gone. Here's what we're going to do. We, this is a new king. Let, let's get this new king to, to enter a restriction on prayer for the next 30 days that no other God can be prayed to over the next 30 days. Now, as a teenager, Daniel might have been afraid. As a 70-year-old, I don't know how many of you are 70 or over, or, or your parents are 70 or over, but I found that with, with, with friends, acquaintances, my parents, my aunt and uncle, that there is a certain threshold you get, and you don't care what anybody else says. And, and somewhere around 70, it really kicks in. <laughs> Daniel's pattern was that he would pray with his windows open, facing Jerusalem, and I don't think it was a silent prayer. And this news comes down to Daniel, and he doesn't go, okay, well, there's a way around this. I'll just close my windows. I'll pray like I normally do. I'll close my windows as 30 days passes. I move on. No, not for Daniel. I'm not going to change what I do or how I do it. Enters his house. He opens the windows. Hits his knees three times a day facing Jerusalem and prays the prayers he prays. Lions den for you, Daniel. So be it. But this time, this king had heard of all of the stories. And he is saddened. Nebuchadnezzar was ticked off. This king, he's saddened. He does not want to throw Daniel in. And he even prays, Daniel, may your gods protect you. He said, oh, king, my paraphrase, they surely will. The king goes to the, to the pit at the end. Daniel, Daniel, tell me you're okay. Yeah, king, I'm still here. King says, hey, all those people that accused him, bring them on over here. The lions have missed a meal. And they get thrown in and with their kids. And, then Neb and the, this king proclaims, there is no God like Jehovah. What's my point? A consistent God deserves but listens consistent trust.
This is where I tell you, you go back in your file and you, you pull out, well, this is how God saved me here. And this is how God led me through here. And this is how God protected me here. And this is when I thought I was really down and out. But then later on, God picked me back up here. You go to that file and go, well, you know what? I know that stakes get higher. Stakes always get higher the older you get. You start making more money. Your kids start getting older. There's more needs. Stakes always get higher, higher the older you get. And that's why the consistency that God has shown you at whatever ever age you stepped into faith, young or old, he always builds on those. And just because you hit something where the stakes have higher doesn't change who the God was who stepped in when the stakes were here. Right? I kept Annie from running off the stage when she was little. I'm going to try to keep her from getting T-boned in a car. I mean, the stakes get higher, but I, I rise to the occasion. And that's what God does. So, so I know I took this turn, and, and, and on Wednesdays we deal with other things around specifics on culture, and I know last week I hit a big, a big heavy target on cultural wars and sexual wars, and I got into prepping for this message, and I just felt this overwhelming need to help us all learn to walk through a culture of crisis instead of just trying to pick these things off intellectually one at a time. Does that make sense to you? That's what I wanted to do today. We get concerned about trying to pick these things off one at a time. We can do that. How do we walk through this a continual culture of crisis? Despite present appearances, God is in control. Crises are temporary. Identity is eternal. Drawn lines draw favor. And a consistent God is worthy of consistent trust. In our response time, I want to pray for you in crisis. I got a text this morning of you, you and I call out names. I don't, I don't expect everybody to know who these people are, but I just want to give them a name. Blake Baldwin's in surgery um, this morning for blood clots in his lung. You might have a crisis. Everything from a personal health crisis, an employment crisis. You just may be overwhelmed in all of the crisis. I want us to pray for the people in Afghanistan. We have we have followers of Christ that are hiding in fear of reprisal. We have Muslims that cooperated with our mission in Afghanistan that are being targeted. And these, this is a major humanitarian crisis. I mean, tens and tens of thousands, underreported numbers. Underreported numbers. Could be up to 70,000 that are in danger. It's a crisis. And it can overwhelm me, or I can pray. You might want to come to the altar just to pray for that. But I encourage you to move. Communion is still open on either side to take communion. But I want to pray for you. Our elders, the elders that are in this service will come forward. They'll pray for you if you come forward and you're in need of prayer in crisis. So let's stand as I pray. And when I finish praying and they begin leading us in worship, I invite you to move. Father, We've come before you. We've, we've, we've opened your word. Lord, you have fed us through your word. And now, Lord, it's time probably for some lines to be drawn in the sand, some steps of faith to be taken. And I pray that you would meet us in this moment. Lord, that where favor is needed, you give us favor. If open paths in front is needed, open a path in front. Lord, if there's healing that's needed in the moment, we pray for that as well. Lord, whatever the crisis is, we want to meet with you now. In the 
name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.